Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. We, we have people floating around out in space now, staying alive for long periods of time. I think we can solve the plastic bag problem. You'd think. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and the Wall Street Journal. This week, we have to talk about Shein again. There were plenty of other stories to choose from, but you know, Shein just kept coming up and up and up. We'll look at the investigation into their labor practices that looks about as bad as you would expect, or maybe worse. Then we'll look at their new entry into the resale market, a peer-to-peer market powered by the tech platform Treat, T-R-E-E-T. In fact, we'll have the Treat CEO, Jake Disraeli, on to tell us about it. We have to ask, does this count as sustainability for a company like Shein? We have a lot of questions. Then we'll look at a tech story. Warn Again Technologies has another $30 million to build an innovative polymer recycling facility in Switzerland. Lots of good stuff happening in Europe regarding recycling and... Um, reuse. We'll respond to one of our listener voicemails, a good one, about plastic packaging. And as always, we'll finish with what's pushing our buttons and trying our hardest to ignore Kanye and Elon for yet another week. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great, Christina. And the CEO of Thrilling, Shilla Kim Parker, is coming to us as always from South Salem, New York. Hey, Shilla. Hi, Christina. I hear you're in the basement this week. (laughs) With a lot of pillows, I might add. I've been banished to the basement. You look cozy with all those pillows. You see, you know the hierarchy I have in my family now. <laughs> the cat, the kids, my husband. Shillin. Shillin's in the basement. <laughs> Listen, guys, we had a lot to choose from this week, didn't we? Maybe it's uh, because the fashion weeks are mostly over and companies got back to business and make announcements before the holiday season starts. I don't know, but it always seems to happen that like late October, early November becomes super crowded with events and announcements. And I've always wondered what it is about this season. Um, So we had a kind of a crazy news week this week. Before we get into it, let's just quickly review what we were reading. ThreadUp reported 107 brands and retailers are now offering resale. 73 of those launched this year, which explains why it feels, to me at least, like a deluge. One of the latest is Hot Topic, a favorite brand of my kids when they were in high school. I was like amazed to see that, which just launched its service called Replay. And this is a cool one. Goodwill is getting into online luxury resale through a new site called goodwillfinds.com, which has curated goods from its donations with proceeds going to social service programs. I don't know about you guys, but I was personally excited for that because I'm often trying to give away clothes that are, they're not, they're not valuable enough for, for resale on a platform that makes it easy for me, like real, real, but they feel like too good to give to Goodwill, Mm -hmm. you know? But you know what's interesting is that they've had a site for years now called shopgoodwill.com, but I think they're trying to transition to this new site, goodwillfinds.com, which is a slightly more curated experience. 
Um, Goodwill has a little bit of a complicated operating structure, lots of 105, something like that, member chapters, so decision-making oh, around. Yeah. Things like e-commerce strategy can get complicated. It's a franchise but, model, basically, right? Oh, yeah. it sounds like AAA or something. Yeah. I think I think Goodwill, uh, Goodwill should honestly own... Um, online yeah. resale and um, right. I thought yeah, they it's should. about time. It just it, it was it's super exciting. It's such a national institution, and for them to enter the e-commerce space, I think um, I, I really wish them well. Yeah, and you can search. I went on the site this morning. There's a pair of white Prada jeans on there for anybody who's a size 36. Oh. Anyway, um, the CFDA has a new chairman, Tom Brown, who's following the, the footsteps of Tom Ford. And I just want to say that unlike the previous two chairmen, it was Tom Ford and before that it was um, Diane von Furstenberg, Tom Brown has experience as a founder and a CEO. He once ran the business side of, of his company um, before it got so big he needed to hire a CEO. And I feel like that's really new for the CFDA. By the way, for those who don't know, it's the Council of Fashion Designers of America. It's sort of the primary organization that um, a trade association for fashion designers. And um, you have to qualify to be a member. It has, I forget, maybe 500 members or so. Um, and, you know, it attempts to advocate for fashion designers doing things like making lists of factories that they can use in the United States so they can help find factories and whatnot. Okay, we got to get Sheehan in here in multiple places. Obviously, their parent company was fined this week $1.9 million for poorly handling a data breach. $1.9 million is meaningless to them. It's a slap on the hand, if that, but it does, does tell you a little bit about um, how they run their business, that they had... Um, a data, data, data breach that they handled so poorly they got fined. And sneaker and streetwear company Goat has announced it's acquiring the resale company Grailed. The terms are undisclosed. Grailed did announce that they're going to continue to operate, so there still will be a Grailed if you're a fan and use it. Um, but you have to think this is big for men's fashion and sneakers and streetwear. Let's get to the top story this week. As much as we'd like to cover someone else, there is really no way to avoid Shein this week. They may have thought this would be a positive week for them with the launch of a new resale program, but along came Channel 4 in the UK, which ran a pretty damning investigation into their labor practices. A tweet from a reporter at another paper, Rob Hastings, summed it up. Workers were paid three pence per item, or just over three American cents, for working 18-hour days given no weekends and only one day off a month. The report said that women were workers in those factories were washing their hair at their lunchtime because they didn't have, uh, they didn't have time um, off to even sort of take care of basic bodily functions. Guys, I've read previous reports of apparel labor abuse in China, but this one was visceral. Um, China, Channel 4's investigator got hired at two factories. She got video footage, so you actually can see it if you're in the UK and can get the um, get the the video. I hope it will be distributed outside of the UK soon. It's been very widely covered in print. The description that sticks with me is a man who started his shift at 8 a.m. was still at his sewing machine after midnight. This Oof. just it's mind boggling. I think it's going to be made into a documentary. In a in a few weeks, available in the UK, um, and I'm very interested to be able. I hope that it'll be made available in the US. But it's devastating and damning. Um, and I, but I, I also can't help but wonder how unique it is to Shein. That was my question. Um, and of course, they get a lot of the heat because of the volume that they produce, and I'm sure the proportion of of of, of um, workers that they're responsible for. But um, I do wonder 
how many other companies that we interact with <laughs> frequently in the U.S. also, you know, employ um, similar factories with similar working conditions. Well, we know they have in the past. Nike, I remember this is several years ago, and I'm sure they've attempted to clear up their supply chain, but this report read very similar to reports that came out of factories that were producing Nike products a number of years ago, and right down to the one day off um, a month kind of thing. Sheehan yeah. put out a statement saying that um, they were going to respond, respond immediately and look in, into this, and all suppliers must abide by our standards based on the International Labor Organization and local regulations. And they said they're conducting thousands of audits. But I mean, like, if subcontracting is how we produce fast fashion, like, how do you dot that I and cross that T? Exactly what it comes down to is the price, yeah. right? I mean, these numbers are incredible that they're, they were describing. This investigator went into two different factories and worked there. <laughs> and she describes quotas of 500 garments a day to be sewn by one person. And two-thirds wow. of your salary that day would be chopped off if you made one mistake. I, I think that the fact that there's, I mean, they can say there's a labor shortage, but of course there's a labor shortage. If you're paying like that and treating people like that, they're going to find any other job first. Well, I don't, and I, I just don't know how much control we have, even if we have all the right intentions, what control do we have about, you know, Chinese labor laws and how they're implemented and executed? Um, I mean, and sometimes in, in cases like this, I kind of feel like, especially with Shein's whole business model and the, and the retail prices they're charging, um, it, cynically, I feel like they're more upset that their suppliers got caught. There's yeah, just there's, no way to for your retail products to have that average price point and for you know your workers to be able to be earning a living wage. You know, actually, that's like that's one takeaway I would love for our le- listeners to have is that we actually can do the math. If you go on Shein, it is full of seven dollar blouses and tops. Okay, seven dollars. How much do does a person get paid an hour here? We're we're talking about wanting to raise the minimum wage in the United States to fifteen dollars an hour. If that's the case, there should be less than what, like twenty five minutes of labor in that entire blouse to manufacture the thread, the buttons, the fabric, to cut it, to sew it, to design it. It's impossible to produce a $7 blouse for anything less with than slave wages or slavery. These are prices that don't even fully value the natural resources, that's what the I was cotton or the polyester say. or whatever that's in it, right? Yeah. You might do better as being a, a setting it yourself up as a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> well, they Just certainly aren't the one. Away. They made like 15 billion, <laughs> at least, you know, double digit billion dollars last year. So I don't think they're profitable. Really? No. You don't I, think I'm Shein not, is profitable? Their costs are so high. Um, for They cannot be making that much of a margin. And so I think um, they're either not profitable or close to break even. They're private, obviously, so we don't have access to their financial records. And I, I assume that that's one of the challenges that they're having with getting out for an IPO. Okay. If anybody knows anything about this, we want to hear from you. DM us, call our call in line. Love to know more about that. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
were not done with Sheehan. Though they were surrounded by negative press for these investigations, they did manage to roll out a resale platform called Sheehan Exchange. It's available to all U.S. customers, and you access it through their app. It's peer-to-peer, so I'm selling to you or you're selling to your neighbor. So customers have to do the work themselves. The platform is powered by Treat and lets users easily list the clothes they have purchased from Shein. It's pitched as keeping their clothes in circulation longer. Isn't the point of Shein to encourage you to follow trends and buy new clothes nearly every week? We asked Jake Disraeli of Treat, he's the CEO and founder, to tell us more. Jake, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, inviting me on. Excited to chat. Jake, we're really excited to have you here because you had some really... um, Interesting news, big news this week. You launched a partnership with Shein. Uh, your peer-to-peer resale platform, Treat, um, is now working directly with uh, Shein. And um, before I ask you more about that partnership and and your company's role in that partnership, I just wanted to know if you could give us a little bit of background about you as the CEO of Treat and the founder, co-founder. Well, um, my background actually goes... I would actually say it starts like my professional career in college studied entrepreneurship and environmental studies. And since then have really tried to blend those two things in, in a lot of different ways um, and uh, have had a really deep passion just for startups and e-commerce um, and was initially inspired by like back in the day in school with the companies like Tom's and Patagonia that stood for more than just making clothes and actually tried my hand at starting several of my own D2C brands with products that could be recycled or um, items made with recycled materials um, and then spent the last four years before founding Treat at Indiegogo running their launch and sales team before uh, quitting that role to start what was initially going to be my own circular men's fashion brand, which eventually pivoted into becoming the platform that would power other brands to do what I was attempting to do, which was create uh, greater circularity in the fashion industry. And um, can you quickly describe how Treat works with brands? Sure, yeah. Our, Our goal at Treat is to work with fashion brands to help them be more circular by launching resale experiences on our platform. And this is done through peer-to-peer resale, through brand direct and take-back programs. But we essentially handle all of the logistics uh, for brands to be able to launch their resale experiences um, in a very like easy and profitable way. So let's just dive right into it because this was big news. This was this is probably global news this week, and um, uh, I, I was excited because I I know you and I know I've we've talked along your entrepreneurial journey, and this is a this is a this is a huge partnership, and a lot of companies, especially early on, look for huge partnerships. Um, Shein has had several recent press-worthy sustainability announcements, which we covered on this show, including donating millions of dollars to the OR Foundation. They've set carbon emissions goals. Um, They've had a recent investment in uh, Apparel Impact Institute's Climate Fund, and now their partnership um, with you, Treat. Shein is also one of the largest producers of fast fashion on the planet, and um, they've received a lot of scrutiny. and Treat, as you've mentioned, is a company that powers peer-to-peer real sale for brands and fundamentally is rooted in extending the life of clothing. Um, what has your process been as a founder and what has the process been for your company to make this decision to launch this partnership? Yeah, it was a very important decision for us to make that we took our time thinking through, um, especially based on the scrutiny that you mentioned and 
uh, and Shein being one of the largest, if not the largest, fast fashion brands. Um, when we really considered this idea initially, we started to lean back on what our mission is as a brand that we've actually already talked about, which is we as a company want to make sure that every item that can be resold is and lives its longest life and avoids the landfill. So our, our whole purpose for being is to help items avoid the landfill and um, and extending the life for, for, for those goods. And so when we thought about working with a brand like Shein, we thought, well, these, these, there's so many, there's tens of thousands of these items, millions of these items out there, then a lot of them are already being resold, but many of them are not. And, uh, and if Shein wants to be, takes a stance and help these items actually live its longest life, whether it's, you know, two years, three years, four years, 10 years, then we can help them do that and open up the amount of people buying and selling secondhand uh, in a really significant way. So you mentioned that if Shein wants to help extend the life of life, life of clothing that you you'd like to, as a company, it's fundamentally it's your mission to support that, and so that's how you arrived at that decision. So that leads me to my next question: Do you believe that Shein products are, are fit for resale and durable enough to stand the test of time? Yeah, I think you only have to look at the evidence that Shein has collected in deciding to create Shein Exchange to land on why they did it, which was this activity is happening anyway. And so as a, as a company, as Treat, when well, a lot of what we do when deciding whether or not it makes sense for brands to host resales, we look at the market, we look at customers, what the buying and selling rate is for, for those items selling on sites like Poshmark, ThreadUp, Depop, eBay, Mercari, etc., um, and if there are any like buy sell trade groups or other communities that popped up that are selling those items, and in Shein's case, there's a lot of that, and they gathered a lot of the data to um, from their customers that said a huge proportion of them have bought Shein secondhand and would want to sell their Shein items secondhand. And so, when it comes to like commenting on their durability and the quality, you know, I've I haven't personally shopped. Shein, so it's hard to comment on that specifically, but objectively speaking, there are so many of these items that are suitable for resale because as you can imagine, and even I would say all of, all of our other brands, there's a lot of like new items out there and a lot of new items that are purchased that, um, that are in amazing condition that have the ability to be resold. And so we even see that a lot on Treat for non-fast fashion brands where a lot of people sell, they get items, they're outside the return window, they don't know what to do with them. And so they end up reselling them on platforms like Treat or branded resale, and um, you know Shein is is no different. Anecdotally, just this weekend, a friend said, "Hey, there's a great swap block party in our neighborhood. You should stop by. By the way, there's a lot of Shein here." <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, zooming out, do you think partnerships like this one that you've launched with Shein ultimately? can encourage resale over new production growth for brands? And if so, how? So a lot of what we've talked about internally um, is we do want to help brands grow responsibly. And so there's been a lot of talk in the industry about degrowth, about overproduction and resale's ability to counterbalance that. And I do believe in that wholeheartedly and want to help brands still grow because brands, I mean, they have to grow. It's like it's in their DNA to, to grow at least in some capacity. And we want to help them do that responsibly. When, when a brand like Shein gets behind branded resale, it shines a light on the 
inherent like benefits that branded resale can bring brands, and also just like the PR benefit of showing the brands like Shein getting behind a movement like this. And so, it, we we do believe it will open up access for more and more brands to think about resale as a revenue stream that can counterbalance overproduction. Um, it's too soon to say how it will affect. Shein specifically in their overproduction, but the more brands that get behind resale, um, the more sellers will end up um, selling items to resale, the more buyers that are going to be shopping resale first. And as a whole, we do think that that will help the industry combat overproduction by going through brands for resale. So that, that was a huge piece of why we were excited to work with Shein in the way that just showing even brands like Shein on a big scale are taking a stance in, in resale um, and uh, investing in it in a big way. Jake, I wonder if there's a another underlying benefit to brands doing resale like this and whether there is um, a flow of data either coming from your platform or their own where they start to understand the afterlife of their clothing, understand their customers better. How does, how does data play into this? Yeah, absolutely. There is a ton of really significant data that brands can gather from resale. Um, and uh, really like very granular from a product perspective. And so they, they'll be able to determine how long an, a customer keeps any specific item and why they're selling that item and ideally help solve um, any issues that might arise. For instance, if they have a shirt that is always being resold a month after it's purchased, there's something inherently wrong about that T-shirt that they need to fix. Um, they can also look at trends in terms of what's selling faster, better, um, and look at even vintage items that might be become very popular like during a next wave or a third wave and start to get better ideas about how to improve their production lines for their future for their future lines. And so um, th- yeah, there's there's so much data to gather and a lot of it is also just financial data for them to understand. Um, Shein actually has taken a stance to not use this to make any money. They are very clear about um, the uh, this isn't a money grab for, for Shein, but a lot of brands can think about resale as a way to create a really significant revenue stream. And the more that they understand how much money that they can make off of resale when they're producing an item, we believe that that will f- encourage them to make less of that item because they know what that they're going to participate the second, third, and fourth time when that item actually resells. And so we're at the very beginning of this. You know, our company launched really spring of 2021, and so we only have you know, a year and a half ish of data from our very earliest brands. Uh, but the more that brands invest in in resale and start gathering data around it, the stronger that case is going to be for understanding the the financial game behind it. And it sounds like the data belongs to she and not to you. So they don't get correct. They don't get data about the other brands you work with. Those brands don't get Shein's data. Okay. Absolutely correct. Okay. Well, that's this is going to be an interesting one to watch to play out. It sounds like there's going to be a lot of product on there very quickly <laughs> from what you're describing. Jake, thank you very much for coming on and joining us today. Thank you so much. Take care. Very good. This is your biz, Shella. What do you what do you think of all this? So I think whenever a company like Shein embraces a word like resale or secondhand, um, I think that's powerful because I feel we we cannot deny that they have a powerful platform. They have a powerful connections to millions of consumers around the world. Um, and so I love anything that helps make secondhand um, or the idea of buying resale um, more of a mo- mainstream concept and more of a mainstream muscle. 
Um, do I cynically believe that they are doing some of the sustainability strategies so that they can protect their mothership and continue as business as usual? Absolutely. Their mothership. <laughs> um, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that they have no intention to slow down their new production growth, um, that they are as ambitious as ever. Um, and I think they're being very savvy about how can we protect um, our core business model. Um, my... Other question mark around this particular model for them is, you know, we talked about how low their retail prices are. They're, on average, a Shein item is $7. So resale, you're buying a secondhand item. What's the maximum you're going to pay for a secondhand version of an item that gets at most $7 new? Um, $3, $4? Um, And then, okay, who's going to pay for shipping? the seller or the buyer. Either way, you're already out of money. <laughs> yeah, they said um, they said that that um that that gets determined between the seller and the buyer but that they did negotiate postage terms. So and you and they send you a label. So you don't have to you won't have to pay what UPS would charge you. So if you're a seller and you sold an item for, you know, a few dollars, you get 90% of that usually from a resale marketplace. So you netted $2 but you're going to pay 6 50 and shipping, that makes no sense. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, um, and then I, I actually do believe that in order for this type of model to be successful, the economics do matter. Um, and I think Sheehan has acknowledged in their press release about it that they're barely making money on it, um, and which makes sense given the, num- the dollars that we're talking about. But I think for a company that has the profit and growth objectives, such as Shein does, in order for them to continue to invest in a program like resale, you actually do want it to be economically viable. Because in in hard times, those are the types of programs that get cut otherwise. So it doesn't sound like you think it's going to be a big success. I don't know if that's true either. I mean, I think their scale is massive. Um, and... Um, Obviously, I think what Jake has built is really impressive, and I, I am um, super excited about the company he's built and what he's doing with brands. Um, and I, I'm very bullish on on Treat, um, but um, I think I'm cynical about Sheehan's motivations. I just don't understand the postage part. I mean, I can't even imagine bothering bothering to go to the trouble to list, a, you know one of those $7 shirts and trying to sell it for $3. Unless they've negotiated like subsidized dirt cheap postage rates. The thing I think most about is maybe because I've been a founder before is, is thinking about making those decisions uh, being in the resale space. Um, you know, um, Jake has done a lot of great work in a short amount of time. And um, as I mentioned, this kind of large relationship is um, can really help your entire business model in terms of notoriety and uh, can add on partnerships. And I, we even heard Andy from Trove um, talk about never say never around fast fashion. Um, but he did, to your point, Sheila, say that really, he, he like Andy mentioned, you, you want to work with brands who this is going to become economically viable for them and necessary because it, it'll be longer lasting potentially. And I think that um, there's a lot of resale platforms in the space and they're all struggling with um, fast fashion is the biggest segment of the fashion market. And how do they partner with these um, brands and also um, maintain their integrity? And I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think um, from Jake's point of view, 
and Treat's point of view, I think they made absolutely the right call. Yeah. I mean, his mission is to get clothing out of the landfill cycle. Um, So from that point of view, from us being a startup founder, from being a mission-oriented founder, that makes 100% sense. Um, And I think they built a great business. Um, I think our commentary is really about Sheehan and not about Treat. No, it's not about trade at all. I, I'm, it's an interesting question mark that founders are, are contemplating around engaging with this, this side of the market. And I do think it's the right answer is to support resale in whatever form it takes. They're not producing the clothes. They're just trying to keep it in circulation. And to limit themselves would be to, to limit the market. Uh, let's move on to something new in tech. Worn Again Technologies just raised $30 million to expand its polymer textile recycling tech and to build a demo plant in Switzerland. This is some advanced chemical recycling technology that targets difficult-to-recycle blends. Rachel, you've talked about that a lot. So we like the sound of it. They're going to build a demonstration plant in Switzerland with the money, and they have the backing of companies like H&M. So uh, what do we all think about this? I think it's a it's a, another market indicator that, you know, recycling is coming for fashion, fiber-to-fiber fiber recycling. Um, it's interesting that it, it's in Switzerland. We've seen other recent announcements um, in the sector, in the fiber-to-fiber fiber chemical fiber recycling sector in Finland with um, Infinite Fiber um, raising a lot of funds to establish a facility in Finland and uh, renew. Ooh, ooh, is that the one that they just announced that the Ukraine war is yeah. delaying their work? Yeah, they and the cost of energy in Europe, the lack of access to certain chemicals they'll need and certain component parts um, for various reasons, including the Ukraine war, is going to slow down their facility till 2026, which is really interesting. Meanwhile, RenewCell is scaled, if not uh, nearly scaled, in Sweden, which is interesting. So um, this is, you know, uh, we can recycle our paper bottles and cans, and and we should be able to recycle our clothing at very end of life. And um, I think Bravo for uh, Warn Again, they've been in business for many years, and um, they are taking a long view. One of their founders just held something called World Circular Textiles Day uh, last week or the week before, um, which is a an event that sort of celebrates uh, circularity globally and brings in a lot of experts to speak on it. And um, um, and there's a lot of focus on the recycling component in that community. And they realize when you hear uh, you hear Warren again speak about this, they realize that it's not going to scale to like 2050, like totally. So um, it's interesting to hear. Um, you have to have a lot of patience, I feel like, if you're in that in that game. <laughs> There's money getting attracted to There's it. There's money getting attracted good, uh, to it. And was this one, I want to make sure I understood this. I thought that this technology that they've done can recycle like a cotton polyester blend. Is that right? All I know is they've gone back and forth, but now they're saying they can recycle hard to recycle polymers. So um, I don't know. It, they may be able to take out the cotton, but I don't. I think they're focusing more on recycling or creating fibers for recycled polyester out of old textiles. Oh, by the way, it's worth mentioning this this plant in Switzerland that they're establishing is a large-scale demo plant, so they can they have a capacity for several million pounds a year um and they're hoping that having this plant will catalyze further expansion. I'm I'm guessing that they'll be able to it, it'll be like a showcase. They'll be able to invite people to see what what could happen at scale. Well, I hope so. Hey, it is listener voicemail time, one of my favorite parts. 
We got another good question from one of our listeners. This one from Robin, who's, by the way, made a point of saying that she was under 30. And so she wanted to call our call in line because my son, who's also under 30, uh, claimed that nobody under 30 would, would actually call and leave a voicemail message. So Robin wanted to prove my son wrong. She's concerned about whether brands can be truly sustainable while they're delivering everything to your door in plastic packaging. That hit me in the gut. It's one of the, it's just like a trigger for me. I'm so sick of trying to deal with all the plastic bags that come in. What do we think? Is it possible? I, I'm certainly not an expert in packaging, although, um, I feel like I'm learning more and more about it every day. Here's the thing. If you're producing your product somewhere else, outside of the United States, and don't own your facility, chances are it's getting sent to you in a poly bag. Now, I do know some companies that have worked with their suppliers to eliminate that. But what- Like who? So there's a company that I've worked with call, uh, called Poshko um, that, that does some of their production here. Um, and and had some in China, and they they they've said that they've worked with their suppliers to eliminate that. But would you rather it not come to your house in a plastic bag, and for the brand to throw out that plastic bag at their facility, so you didn't know? Right, that's the problem. Is that it's the item is actually shipped many times before it gets yeah. to your house. So. It's the consumer-facing piece of it that we're the most sensitive about because that's the part we see. But BBC did a report that said 78 million tons of plastic packaging produced every year. It's a $200 billion industry. Um, and then obviously there are the benefits of it that it's cheap and lightweight and it helps protect your garment or whatever is getting delivered way easier than the alternative. Um, I was reading that glass, which is um, you know, not that much more expensive to produce, is up to 40% more expensive to transport just because of the weight. Um, and I, I don't think that there are perfect alternatives created yet. From what about paper? Mara Hoffman cl delivers her clothes in paper. There's no plastic bags. I think the challenge that, um, it, about paper is that producing paper, it can also be quite energy intensive. Um, and that re recycling paper is also not a perfect system that we've set up the infrastructure for. Um, although I think it's better. Um, better than plastic. Um, recycled plastics, um, I see a lot of companies using recycled plastics now. Um, again, I think part of the challenge there can be the infrastructure to collect the plastic and, and convert it back. I do wonder what it must look like in the rear of a Nordstrom's or a Bloomingdale's when, because all of those clothes that you see on the racks, every single one of those items arrived at Nordstrom's or Bloomingdale's in a plastic every bag, unit. and they have to remove all of them. Every unit, yeah. Imagine what that must be like. It's interesting. Patagonia has on their website right now. They did. They had this like internal case study that they just published for anybody to read, where it was their internal memos back and forth to each other about how to reduce the amount of plastic they use in packaging. Um, and they did all these different tests. Like, what if we we sent the item without packaging? Well, actually, we lose about thirty percent of the garments because they come they arrive damaged, and that's going to actually increase mm -hmm. our, our our waste footprint. Um, and then they the solution they ended on was, um, or you know, that what if we use paper and and still there was too much loss in terms of um, items arriving damaged. And so they they arrived on folding. They 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 tested a lot of different ways of folding garments um, into the smallest possible parcel so that the amount of plastic used is less is less and Ooh, so they're using up to 50 percent less just by just by folding their garments differently and i think they, they talked about they're looking for how to source recycled plastic for uh, recycled poly bags for for that purpose 
you know, there was an underwear brand packed. It, it still exists, but it's been sold and it doesn't exist in the same format that it did initially. But their big thing when they launched about 10 years ago was that they, um, it was, it was, you know, supposed to be sustainable and the packaging was biodegradable. And I remember talking with the founders at the time and, um, and they sent me a uh, one of those bags, and I buried it in my garden to see if it really would disappear. <laughs> you, you told, you told us, us that. Yeah, and it did. It did disappear. And all your plants died. So, and no, well, just I, <laughs> I have a very small yard, so fortunately that wasn't a problem. But, it's just like wilting but, um, trees. <laughs> That's what they're counting on. There's this brand called Prana. Um, so Prana figured out that, um, they were using plastics and they figured out that they can, if they roll and they, and they did the same thing where they tested a million different ways to fold and package and whatever. And they figured out there's a specific way of rolling the garment. Um, and then they tie it with a recycled cotton ribbon. Okay. Um, and that's how they send their garments. And if you go to their website, their entire, the, you don't even get to the clothes. Like this, the, the yeah. homepage is all about how proud they are that in 10 years, they eliminated the use of 20 million plastic bags um, because they've, they um, were so committed to figuring out a different way to ship things. So there's one other model that I know of, which is um, a circular model. And there's some startups, um, one's called Lime Loop. Um, and they basically, they tried their um, reusable, gar- almost like garment bags. So when you receive the item from the brand, you ship that bag back. That's a whole other, con- that's a whole other episode. We should have, uh, that's where I'm going to, Rachel's going to, you know, be, how many of those come back? And like, what does it yes. cost to ship? And yeah. like, you're yep. sending people. And how sturdy are they? Well, it's crazy because the thing is that I, we use Instacart because we can never find time to go to the grocery store. Yeah. And Instacart keeps sending these bags and there's no way for them to use the bags we already have. And so now and, and now it's almost like it's a whole new problem <laughs> where instead of the that flimsy plastic, now we have the same exact number of bags, but they're this the hardy sturdy plastic. The sturdy plastic. <laughs> but what I was just gonna say is um um this that circular model works really well with um any kind of rental company. So rent the runway started using them, and that makes a lot of sense, obviously. And then Stitch Fix also, I I, I believe, also uses that. So now we come to What's pushing our buttons? And I'm just going to say right now, I'm I'm like, I really have a hot button and it's lasted with me all week since last week. She'll have guessed what my, I don't even know how you manage that. That was pretty good. I just knew it. Good. I, now <laughs> I know like, you. I Now I know what ticks off both of you. What's <laughs> all of our hot buttons. Well, the thing is making me crazy is so we have these four city, three city council people and the head of the Federation of Labor got together a year ago and we're planning on redistricting voting districts in Los Angeles. A tape was, was made of this that they didn't know. It was released a week ago. It's created a gigantic furor. President Biden and Nancy Pelosi have asked for all four of them to resign. Two of them have and two have not. They're just, they've gone into hiding. It's reported <laughs> that one of them, whose name is Kevin DeLeon, has been hiding at a friend's house. People are demonstrating in front of the houses. It's it's extraordinary. I feel like it's an example of our times where people just think they can survive somehow. This will all They're disappear. They're ghosting us? Just ghosting? Yes. Ghosting doesn't work. Wait, Christina, <laughs> your hot button last week was so hot that it carried over to the <laughs> cake is what you're saying. <laughs> Wait, so, did we just do the same I'm, hot button? <laughs> 
Yeah, except now we've got two city council people oh, refusing to resign and hiding out. They're literally <laughs> hiding out and can't even go so home. So now we also know she refuse. holds a grudge. <laughs> <laughs> I do, and I'm not alone. No, okay, who not. else has a hot button? I'm so curious what you guys think about this, which is the um, the Just Stop Oil activists throwing soup on the, the Sunflowers Van Gogh painting in National Gallery. I hated it. You hated it. I just thought it was so, I'm too old for that shit. Sorry. Like, I don't know. I'm just like, what are you trying to say? Like, wrong institution, folks. What did you think, Sheila? I was really split about it. I had the initial same reaction where I, the thing that bothers me is the lack of coherence as a form of protest. Like, I want it to actually mean something. And the other thing is there trying to um, end all new licenses for oil production in the UK, I think is I think is their goal. And do I think that they're that this form of protest is going to have that result? No. On the other hand, I think they wanted to raise a massive amount of attention. And I and I also understand from a certain lens where lots of things have been tried and the level of kind of panic and do anything to get the attention of boomers to do something. <laughs> so I understand that level of like urgency and anxiety and 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 wanting to do anything to get attention for an important cause. Rachel, do you have a hot button this week? The fact that I didn't get invited to to go pick apples and look at the leaves cuz the entire internet the entire internet this weekend, <laughs> I was sitting at home. Everybody was the picking apples internet this weekend. Was like I'm in an orchard. If I had known, Shilla. that's we basically live in an apple okay, orchard. Okay, well, I am coming one of these days. Yeah, we're going to have to plan a trip. <laughs> I'm so jealous. We don't have that in California. <laughs> what do people do the in the fall? Thing. Do they do anything? You can pick persimmons. <laughs> we don't have fall <laughs> I know, properly here. I know. Okay, that's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at HotButtonsPod and now on Instagram at HotButtons.Pod. Or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our call-in line. It's at 508-622-5361. Give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Mesa Martinez is our managing producer. Alexandria Hare produced this episode. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. I just can't believe the lack of shame. Like, I... I, I right? That's amazing. I like, I almost aspi- I'm like, I aspire to that because I'm like, I would feel... You know, I give someone a paper cut and I want to shrivel up and die. Like, (laughs) yes. Can you imagine?